Chapter Two of Cycling in the Alps by C. L. Freeston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Stelvio. By its height, the Stelvio claims pride of place among the Alpine passes, for it is the loftiest carriage road in Europe, and one of the highest, if not the highest, in the world. Up to the present, indeed, I have been unable to glean any precise information as to any that is higher, if by carriage roads is understood such highways as a substantial vehicle like the diligence could travel over. If there be a genuine scientifically constructed road that is higher than the Stelvio, it must be in America, and probably on Pike's Peak. The Himalayas themselves can show nothing equal to the Stelvio, a statement I make on the authority of Mrs. Workman, who in addition to her wonderful climbing feats, has cycled 10,000 miles in the peninsula, and who wrote in the Cyclist Touring Club Gazette for February 1900, that the Stelvio may still claim, as far as India is concerned, to be the highest carriage road in the world. Height, however, is not the only feature of the Stelvio Pass. Its beauty is overpowering. Before I decided to cross it, I had some misgivings as to whether in this particular instance the game was worth the candle, and whether the Stelvio's superior eminence was accompanied by unlovely wildness and bare monotony. But there was no doubt as to the success of the venture, and indeed I would aver that no one could cross the Stelvio and regret it, subject to the exceptions due to unfavourable weather or unsuitability of season, which would equally apply to any other pass. As an indication of the measure of satisfaction which it affords to those who essay the undertaking, I may state that I made the ascent of this and several other passes with no other companions but my wife and a lady friend, and that when our round was over, a round involving some amount of forced marching, owing to the limited time at our disposal, and we were considering the question of whether any portion of our journey would better have been omitted, my brave-hearted fellow-travellers declared in unison we would not have missed the Stelvio. Inasmuch as it was inevitable that their courage should be severely tried at times on a tour of this description, the testimony of the two ladies to the impressiveness of the most arduous of our climbs is not without significance. For myself, I must account the Stelvio journey as the most memorable of my experiences, which extend over ten countries, and which, without professing to be remarkable or all-embracing, should at least have served to effect that regulation of the sense of comparison which Dr. Johnson defined as the chief use of travel. The summit of the Stelvio marks the boundary between Italy and the Austrian Tyrol. More often than not, perhaps, it is approached from the south by the ordinary tourist when desirous of escaping from the heat of the Italian plains. But for the cyclist, should undoubtedly be begun from the Austrian side, for more reasons than one. The ascent is shorter from the Tyrol, and at the same time, singularly enough, less steep. The coast which follows is considerably longer, being in fact some seven and thirty miles, and there is the added consideration that on the Austrian side, for a good number of miles, cyclists are forbidden to ride at all. The virtues of the rim brake appear to be unknown to the Austrian authorities, and in any case, it is peculiar that this prohibition should be directed against cycling down the side of the mountain that is least dangerous. The embargo exists, however, and it would be but poor sport for a cyclist to make the prolonged ascent on the Italian side 
and find himself obliged to continue his walk when over the summit. We will assume, therefore, that the rider has ridden to the foot of the Engadine at Martinsbruck, then crosses the river inn, and finds himself at the Austrian Custom House. It is little sympathy he encounters there, for unless he be provided with the special ticket of the Cyclist Touring Club, with his photograph attached, two pounds ten shillings is demanded as duty on his machine, and nothing but gold, and gold of the Latin Union, will satisfy the officials, who will not recognise the English sovereign, and even weigh the other gold when it is tendered. Duly provided, however, with the certificate of temporary importation, so temporary that it will be handed back before fifty miles are traversed, and with one's machine desecrated rather than decorated with the official plomb, one starts for Nauders and the Tyrol. The climb to Nauders is described as a steep hill. It is more like a young pass, for it winds and winds for nearly four miles and is distinctly trying. It is not unattractive, however, as it is well wooded all the way, and occasionally affords fine glimpses of the valley left behind, while at the summit the last view of the lower Engadine is really admirable. Then one drops gently into Nauders, 4,468 feet, which is only noteworthy as containing an ancient castle. From here there is a splendid run of 26 miles to Prad, where the Stelvio Pass may be said to commence. The first four miles from Nauders show a rise of 430 feet to the watershed of Reschenscheidek, which divides the Black Sea and the Adriatic. When past the lake of Reschen, one obtains a distant but striking view of the noble Ortler range of mountains, which form the chief glory of the Stelvio Pass. And excellent though the road is, a pause here is imperative, as an encouragement to face what lies ahead. The magnificent view is not inopportune. From Reschen, the road falls gently for five miles to St. Valentin, and thence, with gradually increasing steepness, to Marles, 3,445 feet, in seven and a half miles, and one's brake power is called fully into play during the descent into the broad valley of the Malsahida, which is dotted with several villages, while the Benedictine Abbey of Marienberg is a prominent object to the right. Mals is a quaint old place, which one enters through an ancient gateway. The hill one has been descending for several miles runs right into the town, and here, I may remark, was the only spot in the whole of my last tour among the passes where I dismounted on a down gradient from motives of caution. Other dismounts were due to the presence of patches of new metal, muddy tunnels, halts for refreshments or punctures, but so far as mere steepness was concerned, the two rim brakes on my tandem were equal to the worst that Switzerland or the Tyrol could offer and at Mars the dismount at the gateway was simply due to the fact that the street was very narrow and there was a bullock cart blocking up the thoroughfare only a few yards away. Indeed, had the road been level, a dismount would have been equally advisable. Continuing to descend, but less steeply, the road carries one through the upper Winchgau Valley, with the village of Glurns and the half-ruined castle of Lichtenburg lying to the right, and the chateau of Schurburg to the left, to Neuspondinig, 2,855 feet, where the downward course ends, six and a half miles from Marles. Here one turns to the right at Hotel Hirsch, and follows a straight road for a couple of miles to Prad, 2,940 feet, 
crossing a marsh and the river Adige by a long viaduct. At Prad, one's work begins in earnest, for the road rises to Gomagoy, 4,265 feet, in four and a half miles, or an average of 294 feet per mile. The Trafoy Bach rushes strongly down the narrow valley with several waterfalls, and the road is not unpicturesque, though as yet it offers no indication of the grandeurs to come. High up on the right lies the village of Stilfs, or Stelvio, from which the pass is named, but there is little in the way of habitation on the road itself until Gomagoy is reached, just as one's patience is on the wane with the long spell of pushing. Gomagoy has a hotel, a point to be noted, as places of refreshment or halt for the night are not numerous. It has also a fortification erected by the Austrian government in 1860, and through which one is only permitted to wheel one's machine, though it constitutes the only bit of level road in the vicinity. The gradient continues for three and a half miles at an average of 233 feet per mile. For the most part, however, it is about as steep as the ascent to Gomagoy, but becomes rideable for a brief space when near to Trafoy. The scenery has gradually been growing more and more imposing, until at Trafoy itself, 5,080 feet, it presents one of the grandest spectacles in the Alps. In the mind of every traveller, there are a few spots out of the many scenes of beauty he has encountered, which are impressed with special prominence on his memory, as the places to which he would gladly return some day, for a more lengthened sojourn. In my own experiences, Trafoy stands out boldly amid a group of five, of which Murren in the Bernese Oberland, Chernobyl on Lake Como, Glengariff in Ireland, and John O'Groats in Scotland are the remaining four. Trafoy is but a hamlet, consisting mainly of two or three hotels, but situated opposite the giant Ortler, 12,800 feet, the highest mountain in the eastern Alps. To the right is the Madach Glacier, huge but beautiful to the last degree, while the neighbouring peaks combine to form a panorama of gorgeous magnificence. Even if one turned back at Trafoy, affrighted at the prospect of further climbing, the journey would hardly have been in vain, and would have left upon the mind a fadeless imprint of transcendent loveliness. To turn back, however, is folly. Excelsior is a good motto, albeit faulty as to its grammar, and on leaving Trafoy, one enters upon the wonderful scenes of zigzags depicted in the panoramic illustration which forms the frontispiece to this book. It is indeed a stupendous undertaking to carry a main road up to a height of 9,055 feet above the sea, and the way in which it winds up the lofty valley is infinitely more marvellous than would appear even from the picture, for to appreciate this engineering triumph to the full, one needs to view it from all points. A bird's-eye view shows effectively enough the angles of the road from top to bottom, but appears at the same time to flatten the route, and does not give a true sense of the downward course of the curves from right to left. To illustrate the way in which the road slopes on the mountainside, as well as descends the valley, it is necessary to study closely the other views of the Stelvio, which are also included in this volume. It is a modern road, by the way, having been completed so recently as 1825, and taking into account the fact that it is cut down both sides of the mountain in the same fashion for many miles, 
it must be regarded as one of the chief wonders of Europe. On the Austrian side, there are no less than 46 zigzags, while those on the Italian side number 38. From Trafoi to Franzenhur, there is a rise of 2,100 feet in four and a half miles, an average of 466 feet per mile. This is at once the most trying and the most beautiful stage of the upward journey, but if one has passed the night at Trafoi and risen at five in the morning, one may get through to Franzenhur and on to the summit itself before the sun has attained its zenith. The post hotel at Trafoi is a comfortable stopping place. The landlord speaks English, and as mountaineering is extensively carried on from this hamlet as a centre, there is no difficulty about early breakfasts. A light meal to start with will suffice one until Franzenhur is reached, where the last hotel on the Austrian side is situated. Good food is here obtainable, on which one may subsist until the summit is passed. While at Santa Maria, two miles down the other side, there is another inn. The slow ascent to Franzenhur, as I have said, is beautiful if arduous. A long pause should be made at the Weisse Knot, a small platform halfway up, from which a splendid view of the Madach Glacier and the Ortler Range may be enjoyed. The far-reaching line of mountains, extending right away to the snow-capped peak of the Weisskugel, is one of perfect symmetry and sublime magnificence. Deep in the valley below, centred among the pines, are the Heilige Drei Brunnen, or the Three Holy Springs, though in reality they are fountains. The holy water flows from the breasts of three rude figures, of the Saviour, Mary and St. John, under a roof, and hard by are a chapel and a tavern for pilgrims. It is worth the traveller's while to visit this spot, the environment of which is peculiarly impressive, but the path from the Weisse Knot is not so good as the one from Trafoi. Two memorials in this vicinity may be noted. One is a marble obelisk at the Weisse Knot, to the memory of Josef Pichler, who was the first to ascend the Ortler nearly a hundred years ago. A little higher up, a small tablet is let into the wall to the right to commemorate the scene of a tragedy of July 1876, when Madeleine de Tourville, an English lady, was murdered by her husband, who hurled her down the slope into the abyss below. Still pressing onwards, one leaves at last the zone of trees, and only occasional dwarf pines now meet the eye. Round and round the curves, cut in regular reiteration, one pushes the machine until the small hotel at Franzenhur comes into sight. It stands on a tiny plateau, a hundred yards or so to the left of the main road, and is shown in the foreground of the accompanying picture, which also illustrates the conformations of the pass as viewed from one side and at a considerable height. Very pleasant it is to sit in front of the hotel, the cool morning air giving zest to the more substantial refreshment it is necessary to allow oneself before mounting higher. A long rest is advisable until the toil has been forgotten, and one believes that the remainder of the ascent, five miles to the summit, is a separate undertaking, and not part and parcel of one continuous climb. The Austrian Custom House, by the way, is stationed at Franzenhur, and from an official whose politeness is in marked contrast with the dour severity of his brethren at Martinsbruck, a handful of gold is recovered, and the seals are removed from the machines.
the final stage of the upward journey with a gradient of three hundred and seventy four feet per mile brings one speedily into the region of eternal snow even in july the road is flanked with great walls of it into which one is tempted to plunge outright for the sun's rays are growing uncomfortably strong the combination of a bicycle and great heat with omnipresent snowbanks is unique and adds to the interest of the journey a roadmender's hut is passed on the left and then nine more corners are rounded and the summit is attained there is a small refreshment hut to the left opposite a roadmender's house and a column marks the boundary between italy and the tyrol it has been hard work to reach this point but regret is impossible the scene is magnificent close at hand is the glistening ice of the aben glacier great fields of snow cover the mountain slopes and one seems to stand above instead of below an endless panorama of peaks there is many a point in switzerland to which men climb laboriously with alpenstock and ice axe and get no finer view than this but here is the all-conquering cycle brought with less difficulty than a mountaineering trip involves and eager to embark upon a coast of seven and thirty miles if the ascent was steep the descent is steeper in eight miles the road falls from nine thousand and fifty five to four thousand three hundred and seventy feet an average of no less than five hundred and eighty five feet per mile the surface is strewn with stones and the edges of the road are unprotected there are small pillars of sugar-loaf shape at regular intervals with a place there to prevent the wheels of a carriage from going over the precipice or to split up the avalanche falls in winter i know not but they are too low to be of use to the cyclist and of railings there are none despite the roughness of the roadway however and the acuteness of the corners it is possible to coast with the exercise of due care and premising that the rider has not entered upon an alpine journey without something particularly good in the way of brakes with two of these on my tandem each acting on the rim i was able to take every corner and ride the entire length of the stalvio on the italian side save for the long series of avalanche galleries in two of which the floor was so extremely muddy that no machine could keep on its keel in such awful slime but i am anticipating in one and a half miles from the summit one reaches santa maria where one may pause for refreshment at the inn and must halt at the adjoining dogana the italian officials were studying the rim brakes of the tandem and the freewheel safety of our fellow traveller as we came out of the inn and were visibly impressed thereby it did not take long to pass the customs in italy at all events i had never before been let through so expeditiously while since my previous journey the special ticket had come into force and there was nothing but the fee for the boletta to pay the italian government by the way now provides gilt shields like a nameplate to fasten the leaden bolobai and the decoration looks almost imposing down the valley one speeds winding backwards and forwards with constant reversals of the view and steering round the corners with a nicety and care that not even the race path exacts there is no banking and the road is flattened slightly at the corners so that if one has slid a strap along the lever of the front wheel brake it needs to be momentarily released or the wheel will skid this alteration of the brake tension in fact is more trying than the actual steering 
as the gradient is so steep and the strain on the hands considerable one is obliged on a tandem at least to resort to a strap but what is right for the straight rush is too severe for the more level corners and to maintain control of the steering and deftly slip back the strap from a tightly wedged lever require much care the strap moreover has quickly to be slid back again to the right before the machine gains too much headway but for this modification of the gradient at the bends the curves would present no material difficulty to a careful rider on the alert even though in some cases the strata of the road are all but parallel and it more nearly resembles a colossal piece of crimped wire than anything else to which it can be compared on a single safety equipped with two brakes there need be no strapping of the lever and nothing like the strain i felt upon a tandem by the time one has dropped three thousand feet the covered galleries appear and convey one through the dirocamento defile of mountain streams there are plenty hereabouts and the sensation of riding through the dim galleries to the sound of rushing waters is singularly weird two rivers also the braulio and the adda join forces in the valley before the series of galleries is ended the road turns southwards before the final tunnel is reached and the bormio valley affords a striking view enclosed by several lofty mountains one of which the piz tresero is nearly twelve thousand feet high at length one emerges from the last tunnel and crosses a bridge which affords another fine view to the baths of bormio a much frequented health resort two miles lower is bormio itself an old town with colonnades piazzas and other characteristically italian features at the hotel torre be it noted there is a landlady who not only speaks english but provides you with excellent tea a very rare commodity in these parts where the decoction is usually straw-coloured and occasionally even tasteless at bormio the end is reached of the extraordinary convolutions of this extraordinary pass and the road is now a good highway with a gently falling gradient of a hundred feet per mile for five and twenty miles naturally it affords a perfect coast free from undue risk save for the unconscionable kine and the passage of the villages over the vile pave of which it is of course advisable to pedal the delights of this ride may be imagined by free-wheelers and habitual coasters to us on our steady tandem it was unalloyed delight and the free-wheel safety had a better chance here than on the rougher steeper surface of the higher slopes down which our intrepid comrades experiences were somewhat purgatorial sweetly one glides to saint lucia and then cepina where the broad valley of bormio with its fine amphitheatre of mountains comes to an end and onwards through saint antonio and the long morignoni defile of three and a half miles until the valtellina is entered and the cold region is left behind the adda river runs through the broad valley past a ruined fort the vegetation grows in richness and at length boladore two thousand eight hundred and twenty feet is reached thirteen and a half miles from borimio boladore lies to the right of the road and is a large enough place to stay the night if need be but it is better to continue on to tirano if not too late there are yet a dozen miles of coasting and through vine-clad hills one passes swiftly the villages of tiolo grossio grossotto 
with its handsome ruined castle mazzo where a landslip in eighteen hundred and seven blocked up the adda and turned the whole valley into one vast lake tovo lovero and serigno with a short final rise to the town of tirano and the end of one of the finest coasts in europe is attained from the stelvio summit to tirano is a fall of no less than seven thousand five hundred and eighty feet and the gradual transition from icy summit to verdant plain with all the intermediate characteristics of scenery temperature and vegetation is from the cycling point of view an incomparable experience before leaving the subject of the stelvio i must add that considerable discrepancy exists in the published details as to the distances separate editions of baedeker and the ctc continental road book give three different versions i have taken the mileages from the newest edition of baedeker's switzerland however they make the journey particularly on the tyrolese side somewhat shorter than the older figures if the latter be correct the gradients are less severe than i have given them if the newer figures are accepted there are fewer miles to walk but at the expense of added steepness the altitudes hold good in either case End of chapter two